0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
2: Erno, Erno Rubik, get in here. Uh, what is it, Ma? This report card, Erno. How can you be dumb as a hamster when your brother and your sister are so smart? I'm smart, Ma. Look at your brother. Marty Rubik is one of the top CPAs in Hungary. He'd take you in if you finished accounting school. Ma, Marty's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. The last book he read... Had pictures of bears dressed up as people. Again, with the books. Why can't you be like your sister Evelyn? She didn't need books to start Evelyn Rubik's House of Goulash. She's got three locations in Budapest already, and next week she opens and... Ma,
1: Evelyn is a moron.
2: She thought Taco Bell was a phone company. Well, she was smart enough to know you could make money in the restaurant business in a country called Hungary. See, even that's kind of stupid. Ma, if you could just look at the cube. Again, Erno, people don't like the cube. It's broken. People don't like broken.
1: It's not broken. It's scrambled up. But people can solve it using mathematical
2: group theory. They'll be using algorithms without knowing it. Why would they do that when they can buy a thing that's already nice and won't give them a headache? Here, take some of your sister's gulash down to your brother's office while I introduce this show about intelligence. And now he took an IQ test, but he got lost in the maze and the rats wouldn't help him. Colin McEnroe.
3: We're going to be talking about intelligence today. Oh, the poor Rubik's, uh, or at least poor Erno Rubik, misunderstood in his own family. Uh, but it does sort of point to the fact that we think about intelligence in ways that are often kind of convenient to us, as opposed to perhaps testable uh, or universal. So we're going to talk about that today. This is a word or a series of words, intelligent, smart, uh, these are words that we throw around all the time, uh, and we we throw them around as if we know what they meant, uh, but do we really know what they uh, mean? So uh, joining us for the uh, first few uh, segments today will be Richard Nisbet. Uh, he is a professor of social psychology and co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. He's the author of Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking. Uh, Annie Murphy-Paul is a writer, consultant, and speaker on the topic of learning. She's the author of the brilliant blog and the forthcoming book, Thinking Outside the brain, the power of our surroundings to make us better. Um, so any Murphy-Paul, I am going to begin with you. Um, what is intelligence? Is there, is there a way to sum this up? Uh, I mean, does this word actually have a meaning that we've all settled on, that we can all agree upon?
0: Well, there's many different uh, definitions of intelligence out there. The one that I end up using is... Uh, Comes from a, a group that called themselves mainstream science for intel uh, about. I'm sorry, Ma- mainstream Int- mainstream science on intelligence, and this was a letter signed by a bunch of leading scientists um, back in 1994 when, if you remember, the whole bell curve um, controversy over intelligence and race got uh, was underway. And mm-hmm. they wrote a, a letter that was published in the Wall Street Journal, and it, I'll just read you quickly this their definition because I find it very useful. Um, Intelligence is a very general mental capacity that, among other things, involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and learn from experience. It's not merely book learning, a narrow academic skill, or test-taking smarts. Rather, it reflects a broader and deeper capability for understanding our surroundings, catching on, making sense of things, or figuring out what to do. Now, that's a lot of words, obviously, to disc- to define one single term. But the history of intelligence has, uh, and the study of intelligence has been so fraught and so controversial that I think it's useful to have a really thoughtful... Nuanced definition like that, but I'm sure Professor Nesbitt has his own definition. He's really the expert on this, so let, maybe we should ask him.
3: Well, before we a- ask uh, Richard Nesbitt that, let me just sort of say it, that, that that definition sounds like the definition of a lot of different things, which which probably mm-hmm. conforms to people's experience. In other words, I, I know that Paul McCartney's brain has uh, a facility, an understanding, uh, a, an intelligence about music, uh, and that that facility does exist in his brain. Brain uh, it, it exists at the level of thought. He can think about things that I could never think about, that I could barely understand if he tried to pl- explain them to me. I also feel like I could beat him at Jeopardy really easily, um, and and that I, in a lot of other ways, I, I, I'm guessing I'm probably quote unquote smarter than he is. I mean, a definition as broad as the one that you read strikes me as useful in the sense that it seems to include a lot of different things that do strike us as intelligence, but not useful in the sense that it really doesn't narrow the thing down very much.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you might get a more specific, uh, you know, hold on this idea if maybe we described intelligence as the ability to solve the problems that matter to you. So you can solve the problems, um, you know, involving your radio show, but not the problems of writing a song like the ones the Beatles wrote.
3: Right. So Richard Nusbeth, let's let's go to Richard Nusbeth now. So um, that seems both true and a little, once again, a little bit self-serving or a little bit not entirely as useful as we'd like it to be. In other words, if intelligence is simply the ability to solve the problems that one has picked out to solve or that life has picked out for us to solve, Um, And they're not all the same problems. Are we even talking about a phenomenon that we can look at across a whole bunch of different disciplines?
1: Well, you can certainly look at it across a bunch of disciplines. I actually endorse that definition, uh, which was just given. In fact, when I write about it, that's the definition I give. Uh, I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it's too general to match the fact that our concepts of intelligence are very, very general. I mean, there are many kinds of things we would call intelligence, uh, and most of them are pretty well captured uh, by that definition. Uh, But uh, what I'm mostly concerned about with testing IQ uh, is that uh, it narrows down on a are uh, a relatively small set of cognitive operations um, they 're very important, all of them, but they 're not everything uh, so uh I argue that there's such a thing as being able to score high on an i q test and still lacking a huge range of skills that would be very useful in the modern world uh and we all lack those uh, but I've spent a lot of uh, my career uh, looking at uh, sort of tricks of the trade, uh, cognitive skills that uh, make us smarter, um, but wouldn't actually be captured on an IQ test. So,
3: you know, Annie said uh, that the definition that she read um, arose, I think I'm saying this right, uh, kind of after the the climate that w- of conversation uh, and controversy at times that was occasioned by books like The Bell Curve. That was Charles Murray's book, and he, that was preceded by uh, a bunch of work by uh, actually a couple of scientists, in particular, no real background in intelligence. William Shockley, a physicist who'd won the Nobel Prize and is actually responsible for some of the semiconductors that, that we use in computers, and there was a guy named Jensen, too, I think who also had a similar non not a background in this kind of thing. And and they were all making these similar arguments, which is that uh, that. Minorities, especially African Americans, um, don't test as well on the IQ test, and and they expanded that into a social argument, and saying that that was sort of an inflexible problem, that was a problem that wasn't going to change. Um, and, and I assume, um, Richard uh, Nesbitt, that that's one of the reasons that we started thinking about a much broader way of understanding intelligence. That that this test, you know, I mean, I, actually, I'll ask a question instead of that. I mean, what the que- the question I immediately had even back then was, well, if this test is made by a sort of white male dominated group of people who make tests uh and it measures it's pretty good at measuring how well you're going to do out in the world or how much money you're going to make in a white male dominated society maybe it's not testing intelligence so much as testing how well you can conform to a, a certain set of standards
1: well actually i i i think iq tests do test uh terribly important skills uh, and I'm perfectly willing to use uh, IQ tests as a measure within our culture, uh, of, of our larger culture, of, uh, of skills which are very important to have. The the racial thing uh, they got wrong. And just as an aside, I'll say it, it could have been known at the time to be wrong. Um, there we actually have a huge amount of evidence did at the time uh, on African Americans versus European Americans. Um, And all of that evidence, and now I'm talking about scores and scores of studies of uh, at least uh, 20 or 30 different designs, which show that uh, the difference in IQ between blacks and whites uh, owes nothing to genes. Genes are very important for intelligence, that's for sure. It's just that they don't differ across those two particular groups. And uh, the best uh, example I can give of that, uh, the the most telling study, but they all fit this to one degree or another, with one exception. Uh, You have uh, black kids, uh, some of whom are uh, pure African ancestry, and both parents are black, and some of whom one parent is black and one parent is white. All the kids in this study now are going to be adopted and they're adopted either by black middle-class families or white middle-class families. And now you look at what their IQ is after they've been raised in those environments. And what you find is that for the black kids, whether they are mixed race or pure African uh, in origin, uh, their I- IQs are the same. Whether they're, That's true whether they're raised in black families or in white families. But the difference between kids raised in black families and the kid raised in white families is essentially the entire difference in IQ, which existed at the time of the study, which is about 14 or 15 points. So it's, it's just a very clear way of showing that it's a subcultural difference, uh, which is producing that difference between African-Americans uh, on, on the whole and European-Americans on the whole. And by the way, I'm happy to say now that Twenty-two years after that book was written, half of the IQ difference between blacks and whites, which existed at that time, is now gone. (laughs) So much for the prediction that nothing could be done about the IQ difference between the races.
3: Exactly. So, um, Annie, actually, Annie, I'm going to play um, a clip for you uh, of a man whose voice you will immediately recognize, although perhaps not entirely happily
1: the wharton school of finance i was an excellent student i'm a smart person
0: who are you consulting with consistently so that you're ready on day one i'm
1: speaking with myself number one because i have a very good brain and i've said
4: a lot of things i I told you i went to the wharton school of finance i was like i'm like a really smart person
1: my uncle was a perfect dr john trump was at mit one of the smartest people like you know smart right
3: so, Annie, I'm not asking you uh, to tell us whether or not Donald Trump is as smart as he thinks he is or even whether he's smart, but he's making mm-hmm. a set of claims which are very pertinent to people right now. They are, they are mm-hmm. going to essentially make a choice between probably two people to run the country, and they don't want to pick somebody who's not very smart. Um, mm-hmm. So so we're sort of back to your, question, to your issue. In other words, does smart mean— Able to solve the tasks that might come up in front of you, or does smart mean something else, particularly when we need somebody to be quote unquote intelligent? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, going back to that definition that I proposed, uh, a working definition that would say, smart is as smart does. In other words, intelligence is the ability to solve the problems that matter to you in your life. A really important aspect of of being smart of knowing how to solve problems is to know what you don't know and i would suggest that that is where <laughs> donald trump uh falls down on on the definition of of um of being a truly intelligent individual because we all as humans we all fool ourselves we all are ignorant and we don't know that we're ignorant but um we can cultivate an awareness of Uh, a humility about um, what we know and what we don't know. And it's very dangerous, frankly, to not be aware that one's knowledge isn't complete. It isn't um, all-encompassing. And so the truly intelligent person has to always have that awareness that their knowledge is limited, and that f- humans are by nature kind of self <laughs> self deluding. You know, um, self um, we we fool ourselves a lot. We don't under, we don't know the extent of our own ignorance.
3: Well, let's also set uh, Mr. Trump aside for just a second. And, and, I mean, the other question that I would have, Annie, is it seems as though the skill sets that translate into competence, intelligence, smartness, uh, whatever we want to call it out in the world, shift a lot. In other words, we go through revolutions. We went through an industrial revolution. Where we, we've been through an information revolution. So I, I would also assume that that these the things that – that, that portend excellence are are not necessarily fixed constants. In other words, certain thinking styles are probably a little bit more useful right now than they were 50 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. I mean, what the skills and capabilities that are valued in the workplace or even in schools today are different from those of 50 years and different from those of 100 years ago. But I think that's why that sort of long, wordy definition that I read out at the beginning of this hour is useful because it is it is so general. It doesn't specify particular uh, skills or, or, or ways of thinking so much as saying it, it's the ability to catch on, to figure out what's going on. And that is very, as you point out, is very uh, dependent on the time and place.
3: And so, Richard Nisbet, is, do the conventional instruments of measuring IQ Measure that. In other words, uh, uh, you said before that you ultimately do endorse and believe in the our capacity to measure something that we call IQ. Do, does it measure the thing it's, that she's talking about right now?
1: Um, namely, our ability to think about the things we care about. Is that what? Yeah, or the
3: the things that you, that we need to think about, I guess, in order to solve a problem that's in front of us.
1: Yeah. Well, I I, I wouldn't want to restrict it in that way at all. Um, I mean, but back to the issue of Donald Trump's intelligence. Okay. Um, I, uh, there's a, a lovely finding uh, by a colleague of mine named David Dunning and his colleague, whose name is Kruger, um, called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, and it shows that the more intelligent a person is, the better calibrated they are with respect to how much they know. Uh, and uh, if you're sufficiently unintelligent, you're hopelessly badly calibrated. You have no idea of how ignorant you are. Mm -hmm. The smarter you are, the more aware you are of of areas where you are actually ignorant. Um, So um, what's stunning to me about Donald Trump, I take it for granted that in you know, in the ordinary sense, he's smart. I mean, he, he certainly made a lot of money. Uh, he's um, he certainly managed to make himself uh, a, a celebrity, and partly it's not just by antics; it's by uh, being clever. And he's managed, after all, to win the nomination of a major political party. Uh, but uh, given that, I, I find his, his areas of ignorance just staggering. Uh, I, he he. <laughs> and and nothing could be more unsettling than this idea that we just from the quotes you just read of how would I handle foreign policy? What do you know? Oh, no, no problem. I have a big brain. Well, a big brain. I mean, you can have an enormous brain in a vat. I mean, that <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. The question is, what do you know about it? What have you? I mean imagine that uh, that you or I uh were uh, suddenly put into uh, Trump's shoes as the executive of uh, of a major uh, company uh that builds buildings uh and now you have to act in that function you have to direct it i mean it was completely terrifying to me i don't know i don't know a tiny fraction of what would be necessary to be uh, an effective uh uh, uh uh, person in that in that kind of role uh and it's very much that way uh for uh anything to do with with policy or with strategy and dealing with foreign countries and so on i the ignorance there takes the breath away honestly i and it, it does because not because he's a uh i think he's a stupid man i don't think he's a stupid man but it just uh the the intellectual tools uh that are necessary uh, to think effectively about the kinds of problems that would confront a president are astonishing, and I think I on a, I I don't know whether he really understands that there that it, that he could no more step into the presidency with his level of knowledge than you or I could step into the role of executive of a of a of a, an architectural firm.
3: Um, there 's a lot of places that I, I might want to go from there, but Annie, just in the interest of time um, let 's uh, go to one of richard 's models there. You know what would happen if he or you or I were suddenly thrust into the role of real estate tycoon or something like that. One of the things that we would do immediately, I think is is say to ourselves i don 't really know that much about this in, this this situation i 'm in, but I know how to get information mm-hmm. uh, and, and so and there 's never been a, a time in the history of the world where more information was accessible. So and in some ways, I mean, my broader question to you is, I feel as though, not to keep using Jeopardy as an example, but that, you know, that Ken Jennings could be beaten at Jeopardy by a reasonably smart millennial with a smartphone who was kind of allowed 60 seconds to use it, That 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 increasingly the mind that sits inside the casing of our skull is only the beginning of what our intelligence is.
0: That's exactly right. And that's my problem with conventional IQ tests. If you think about how it's such a test is given, you, uh, you're you put in, in a room by yourself. Not You can't draw on the intelligence of other people. You can't use your tools, your computer or your calculator. Uh, you're taken out of your, your um, usual physical space, which may help you think in various ways. You're taken out of your cultural uh, and organizational setting. All these things... Um, help us think and and i and there's something very interesting happening in in fields as diverse as psychology and neuroscience and cognitive science and philosophy even suggesting that our idea that intelligence is something located exclusively inside the brain we're coming to see that that's very limited and especially in these days when our problem the problems that are, confront us are so complicated and so complex one isolated person working alone um, you know, without tools, without uh, the ability to use their body, which is, of course, restricted when you're taking an IQ test as well, the, that's not going to work to solve our problems. And so this thing that we've been calling intelligence is really just one small part of what intelligence really is in the real world.
3: See, you're kind of making the argument that McLuhan made, right? McLuhan said that technology would allow us to extend our dendrites out into the universe, that that ultimately um, our our neurophysiology would, would, and I guess Teilhard de Chardin almost said a kind of similar thing, that that, that it would build out somehow, that it would get connected uh, to other things, that our minds would essentially be extended by technology.
0: Yes, and that's what the World Wide Web is, really. I mean, uh, McLuhan was... Really prescient, I think, in seeing what would happen with technology. But I think we also have to include uh, relationships with other people. I mean, that's a way that humans have been making themselves more intelligent um, than they could be on their own for you know for millennia before computers or anything was ever invented. Um, and also, what we can do with our our institutions and our intellectual traditions. These things um, really can extend our intelligence far beyond what the individual brain can do.
3: So, uh, Richard Nisbet, what about that? I mean, it does seem as though certainly in the age of Erasmus or, or John Stuart Mill— or Thomas Jefferson, uh, it was certainly useful to, and, and desirable to, to have people who were really, really smart and really, really knew a lot of things and were these kind of self-contained apparatus uh, of intelligence and brilliance. But, but what about the argument that, that measuring that now kind of ignores the reality that so many things are collaborative and so much of our brain uh, is plugged into a, a big set of computers that we should just really be really good at using?
1: Well, I, I do think that's true. I think uh, to be effectively intelligent requires a lot of collaboration with human beings and with machines. Uh, uh, today, uh, I mean, you can certainly be perfectly intelligent and, and not be connected in those ways. Uh, but uh, for most of the things, certainly that I want to do professionally, I mean, I'm I'm constantly aware of how dependent I am. I'm mean, going to pick up the I to say, pick up the phone, who uses a phone? <laughs> I email the expert on something for i 'm doing that constantly i'm checking Wikipedia many times a day uh, and uh, it's uh, and of course you know i'm using my or my colleagues who are better data analysts than I am, are using uh, external machines all the time to derive uh, uh, summaries of what's true in the world and, uh, and how you might change those things. So uh, that's, that's certainly true.
3: Um, so I, I'm going to ask one last question before we go to break here, but I, I think this is uh, this comes from a tweet, too. Stephanie is tweeting at us, IQ scores perpetuate our competitive culture and harm actual people. Motivation is the strongest driver of learning. I'll uh, phrase it a, a different way, and I'll, I want to hear from both of you, but I'll start with you, Annie. So I'll quickly tell you a story, which is that when I was in going into seventh grade, uh, my mother accidentally saw a list of the IQ scores. Of, I was going to a boys' school of all the boys uh, in my class, uh, and she didn't tell me what was on it or anything like that she just kind of tortured me with it for the next six years and, and apparently I had a pretty, pretty high IQ score and she if I didn't do as well as another boy she'd go well he's not as smart as you are Uh, you should be doing better. Um, Hmm. And what bothers me a lot was that one of the boys was this guy named Bob Greenberg who actually Hmm. was one of the original founders along with Bill Gates uh, of of Microsoft, basically. (laughs) He was one of the guys in the garage with Bill Gates and I was constantly Hmm. being judged and told, well, I should be getting better grades in math than Bob Greenberg Hmm. because my Hmm. IQ score said I was smarter than Bob Greenberg. I'm here to tell you, I was not (laughs) smarter than Bob Greenberg. (laughs) He was a lot smarter than me. So, I mean, things like that and the tweet that we got, there's sort of an argument for saying, well, why quantify this anyway? what's the social good that comes out of quantifying something like this Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: yes I think uh, you know one thing that uh, IQ scores uh, and and a focus on IQ scores leads to is what the Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck calls a fixed mindset your mother was kind of engaging in that when she said well you're X smart and that other person is Y smart so you should be getting uh, better grades and uh, you know um, the idea that our abilities are set by something like an IQ score, or or indicated in some final and definite way by an IQ score is a really dangerous idea, I think, um, and it does uh, promote, as as Stephanie tweeted, uh, this idea of of a, a competition when, uh, you know, just to go back to to a variant of of the IQ of the intelligence, the definition of intelligence that we've been kind of circling around, this idea that. The kind of intelligence that really matters is the kind that allows you to do what you want to do, what your personal projects are. And I just want to put in a plug for a wonderful book that uses that definition um, of intelligence. It's called Ungifted by Scott Barry Kaufman, and he proposes a new definition of intelligence as – um, the capability that allows you to solve problems and make progress in the areas of life that, that you care about. And to me, that makes a whole lot of sense.
3: So, Richard Nisbet, obviously your research is facilitated by the existence of IQ scores. Uh, if, if nobody ever quantified any of this stuff about anybody, uh, you'd have to go at your work in a very different way. But beyond that, beyond the ability to do research, out there in the real world, is there any real value? in, in I mean, w- would the world be a better place if nobody knew anybody's IQ scores? Uh,
1: I think there would be something to be said for that, but uh, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, we don't give IQ scores tests much anymore. It it just isn't very common. Uh, it's uh, it's very useful to me as a scientist. I mean, you can track how the society is, is doing. And by the way, we have gotten astonishingly higher IQs over the last hundred years. I mean, it's... Uh, to, it's essentially a person with an IQ of 100 in 1947 uh, would, uh, we, because we, we, that's the average of IQ, and we always define the average as being 100, just arbitrarily. Uh, that person today uh, would get an IQ score of less than 85. Um, so that's the difference between being able to function in every way, in a normal way, uh, and someone who would be very slow and find it very difficult to do anything other than relatively menial tasks. Or at the other end, uh, if uh, if you had an IQ uh, uh, of, uh, of 115 uh, at that time, uh, that would only, today, uh, that would only uh, be uh, an average IQ. Uh, We don't know exactly why IQs have been increasing. They've been increasing throughout the Western world now for uh, uh, the the rich world uh, for a 100 years at least. Uh, And it's begun in uh, developing countries that are fairly far along, places like uh, Brazil uh, and Iran and so on. Uh, And it's starting now in the very most uh, impoverished countries. Uh, It seems to be topping out uh In uh, Scandinavian countries, so that may be as far as we 're going to go with the kinds of skills that get tested by i q tests but uh but what i 'm much more concerned with than uh than i q type things uh, are the kinds of uh routines uh procedures uh that uh we can use to understand the everyday world that aren 't touched by i q tests at all um, i th- the IQ tests were, were designed to measure the skills that were essential for the industrial age. But we're in a different age now. We're in the information age. Uh, and there's a whole set of skills that are necessary to, f- to function sensibly with data. Uh, and they come from statistics and probability, uh, scientific methodology, uh, some ph- philosophy of science concepts, cost-benefit decision rules, and so on. Uh, Now, people have heard of, for example, uh, uh, take the law of large numbers, uh, which everyone's heard of in some version. I mean, more data is better than less data, uh, and that's especially true if the data is noisy. Uh, But uh, people use that, many people use that on a daily basis in their professions, but it can be used... (laughs) <laughs> every day in our in our personal lives uh, as well, uh, and it's not. Uh, and uh, the tools have been around uh, for 150 years now for the information age. Most of them, many of them, uh, but very few of them uh, have trickled down to where we can use them in everyday life.
3: All right, Richard Husbart, we're going to have to grab a break right now. Uh, Need Silver is telling us uh, we have to go to a break, and uh, you know, obviously. He's kind of in control now for exactly the reasons you're talking about. And we're talking about the idea of intelligence with Richard Nisbet. Uh, He is professor of social psychology and co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. He is the author of Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking. Uh, Annie Murphy-Paul is also with us, writer, consultant, and speaker on the topic of learning. She's the author of The Brilliant Blog and the forthcoming book, Thinking Outside the Brain, The Power of Our Surroundings to Make Us Smarter. So, Annie Murphy-Paul, I was about to say something that I now realize is wrong. I was about to say that we live in an age where there was an, there's an unprecedented amount of stuff being shoved at us with the with the suggestion that it can make us smarter or make our children smarter or make our unborn children smarter or make our sperm smarter or whatever uh, and and sperm and eggs, obviously. But, um, uh, you know, but really, in fact, this has been going on forever. And there have been various versions of this that have existed, you know, certainly for all of my life and, and, and longer still. That notion of self-improvement, that notion that you can make your brain, your mind better by doing this or that. Uh, there were gurus about this like Mortimer Adler or, you know, people like that in the 50s and 60s. So but right now there's this notion anyway, there's stuff you can do either to make your child smarter or to stave off incipient uh, mental decline as you, the baby boomer, uh, enter your 60s and 70s. Um, How much of it actually has any utility?
0: Well, you're right that there's a whole industry uh, ranging from educational toys for for babies and children to, you know, Lumosity and the the brain training programs that seem to be advertised everywhere on the web these days. And, uh, you know... uh, it, to speak first to the ki- to the children, to the to this um, young people aspect of of how to make them smarter. That really, what we know about helping kids become smarter is doesn't suggest that using educational tool, uh, toys and products is the way to go, but rather just to engage them in back-and-forth conversation with adults who care about them. And that and reading are the two kind of low-tech ways that actually really do make children smarter. And then as for the... Um, uh brain training programs there's not a whole lot of evidence that that works in the sense that uh you, you will you, you will get better at the brain training games themselves but those improved those improved skills don't transfer to your daily life which presumably is why you would um why you want to you know sharpen your skills in the first place so what i tell people is uh you shouldn't so much be exercising your brain with these uh, with these tools and and programs you should be exercising your body that's um Really, uh, physical fitness and physical aerobic exercise is, um, there's a, quite a large research base to suggest that that is uh, the best way to stave off mental decline and to keep your, your mental faculties sharp.
3: Um, Richard Nisbet, in some ways, I think we're a society that looks for shortcuts. Uh, if I buy this particular program, if I take ginkgo biloba or some kind of other supplement, if I do this or I do that, I can boost uh, my brain or I can boost my child's brain. I'm guessing that a researcher like you is thinking, no, pretty much the, just the normal course of what we call education uh, is what's going to make you smarter.
1: That's right. Um, these uh, things like... Um uh, these computer programs that are supposed to make you smarter, uh, there's very little evidence uh, that they do much uh, that has uh, lasting substantial effect. Um, and in any case, they're, those kinds of things are geared for what's called fluid intelligence. That's the ability to think uh, in abstractions, especially the ability to hold things in mind at the same time as you solve problems. You maybe can get some of these exercises maybe can make you a little bit better at those things, but that's not the core of intelligence. I mean, everybody has enough fluid intelligence to be able to function at a fairly high level. Just how high a level is very much a function of uh, starting, Just as was just pointed out, uh, in uh, early childhood. There are dramatic differences. Uh, between the social classes and between ethnicities uh, in the kinds of, of literary and verbal activities that go on. In a working-class family, uh, the most of what is said to a child is in the order of an instruction, do that, don't do that, a correction, or so on. And as you work your way up the socioeconomic ladder, conversations re- more and more resemble uh, a tennis game, uh, it's serve and return. I mean, the parent says something, the kid says something back, the kid asks something, the parent answers something and asks the kid another question. It's just, it's a, a qualitatively different kind of thing. Uh, and as we've just been told, there's lots of evidence that that's just crucial, uh, to lay the groundwork, uh, for intelligence. Uh, beyond that, uh, it's a question of learning, uh, particular skills. Uh, And uh, those skills, the the more you read, the more literature you're familiar with, uh, the larger the range of concepts that you have. Um, And uh, there are other ways of hanging around with smart people is a very good idea, uh, because uh, there is some evidence that uh, you tend to uh, gravitate toward uh, the, the average of the set of people that you spend the most time with. Um, so, and part of that is um, verbal instruction, basically, from other people.
3: Um, very quickly, uh, Richard, because we have to go to a break here, but, um, you know, another thing that, that strikes me, and I know it's been part of your research anyway, is that we increasingly also live in a global society. We're not just um, hanging around with the other people in New York City or Cincinnati or San Diego. We're hanging around with all the people in the world, and we're doing business with them. We're exchanging knowledge with them. And I'm guessing that the way intelligence is evaluated and cultivated uh, differs from society to society. I know you've done, you have some thoughts. Anyway, about the difference between the way that's done in Asia as opposed to, say, the U.S.? Uh,
1: Well, there are differences. I I, I don't think that there are important differences with the kinds of intellectual skills that I study uh, across rich societies. I mean, it's really the same set of skills. There are subcultures within each society. Uh, which uh emphasize uh different things to different degrees. Uh but uh and there are some subcultural groups which actually have overall average lower IQ. We were just talking about one of those, the black white difference, which is uh, diminishing uh constantly. Uh but <clears throat> uh if you look at societies which are pre literate uh pre industrial uh it's shocking to us uh the degree to which they lack intellectual skills that we tend to think of and well it just that just comes with the territory that's part of the hardware ability to think uh uh abstractly uh is uh is a relatively new invention it's basically post industrial revolution if you were to Uh, There's a wonderful study done with preliterate people in the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union. Uh, You uh, you talk to a peasant. uh, You say, uh, in the north, all bears are white. Uh, I got a letter from a friend recently uh, who uh, told me that he had seen a bear. Uh, He lives in the north. What color do you suppose the bear is? And the answer would be, why do do you ask me? Ask your friend who saw the bear. Uh, there just <clears throat> isn't an ability to apply what to us is just part of the hardware but isn't. Uh, that is, if P, then Q. P is the case. There Now I know that Q is the case. People can use that prior to education. They can use it only for materials that they're extremely familiar with. Same thing is true for hypothetical reasoning. If you were to ask someone in 1750, uh, you know, how do you think you would think about that if you were French? You say, "Well, that's ridiculous. I, I, I'm not French. I, I couldn't be French. I mean, there's no, no, no concept of hypothetical reasoning." And uh, so these are the kinds of things that the Industrial Revolution required. We got them. Uh, we're continuing to get them more and more all the time. But the kinds of things that are needed for the information age, uh, we do a spotty job of. And we're getting big subcultural differences in that, I should say. I've been studying what happens two years of education at the University of Michigan, uh, and students in the behavioral and social sciences gain a huge amount in the way of these kinds of information age tools, probability, statistics, scientific methodology, uh, to solve not just professional problems, but problems in their everyday life. They they understand them quite differently.
3: Richard Nisbet, I'm going to just break in here because we've got to hit a break. Nate Silver is texting me again. So uh, Richard Nisbet, professor of social psychology, co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, author of Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back with more of Annie, and we're going to add another guest as we begin to talk about artificial intelligence.
1: Yes, you, think you know
2: it all. Don't go away. In the final segment, Colin and the guests will tackle the question of whether true intelligence can exist outside the sphere of human consciousness. in an actuary, for example. Today's show was produced by Josh Malea and me, Cayon Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Leah Myers and Esther Shitu. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jim Carrey. For show pages, articles, and the IQ scores of the Here and Now staff, go to our website, WNPR.org/colin, and visit our brand new Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On tomorrow's show, the Nose listens to the sound of Paul Simon. And now, back to Colin.
3: Yes, uh, you can listen to David Green uh, interview Paul Simon in the morning and then listen to us talk in depth about this uh, remarkable new album uh, on the show tomorrow. But right now, we're talking about intelligence. uh, And still with us is Annie Murphy-Paul. Her book is Thinking Outside the Brain, The Power of Our Surroundings to Make Us Smarter. Her blog is The Brilliant Blog. joining us also is George Dvorsky, a leading bioethicist, futurist, and transhumanist. He's also a science and futures writer for Gizmodo. So um, George Dvorsky, we We've been talking about intelligence uh, in a lot of different ways, but particularly, I, I think, in the ability to figure out how to solve the problem that's in front of you, the problem that you need to solve. So uh, using that or, or some similar definition, how close is artificial intelligence or machine intelligence getting to what humans are able to do?
4: Well, we're getting we're getting there closer and closer all the time. I mean... Um... We have machines today that already far exceed human capacities in many uh, important ways. I mean, since the 1990s, for example, we've had computers that can defeat the, um, the world's greatest chess players. Um, even more recently, it uh, Go- uh, was Google's AlphaGo, uh, won uh, the first uh, several games against the grandmaster Lee Cido in a in a Go tournament, and, and for many years, uh, we didn't think that was going to be possible. And of course, we have other tools at our disposal that arguably are uh, imbued with intelligence that can um, perform many tasks that uh, exceed human capacities. I mean, look at the lowly calculator, for example. It's been around for many, many years, and it can arguably do math uh, hundreds, if not thousands, or even million times better uh, than humans can. But obviously, um, you're looking at some the more kind of generalized intelligence that is associated with human intelligence, or what... Um, artificial intelligence researchers refer to as artificial general intelligence. For example, if we were to put um, Deep Blue or AlphaGo into a rainstorm, um, it, it would have no sense. For example, to pick up an umbrella and cover itself uh, to prevent it from getting wet and being destroyed. Um, that's because it's 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 got a very narrow sense of intelligence. It's been highly specialized to perform a specific task. Now, the ability to create an um, um, intelligence that has this more broader, flexible, adaptive uh, intelligence that we are really far off from that. So any kind of uh, discussion about um, human level or generalized level AI being imminently um, uh, you know present it, it's uh, it's overstated we're still decades away maybe even a century away from achieving that kind of intelligence
3: right so um, and by the way George Javorsky is joining us right, right now by, by Skype so um, you could obviously teach that machine to do that you could teach that machine uh, to know what it means to be rained upon and what to do what you wanted it to do what it should do in the event of rain you could teach it that but but I guess what you're saying is is can it can it generalize? Can it can it have a whole sp- series of uh, of experiences and, that what you would maybe even call qualia, conscious experiences uh, uh, of something, and, and from that know another thing to do that wasn't anywhere on that original menu
4: well what we're talking about here are two very distinctive things there's intelligence and then there's consciousness and it's very important that we don't conflate those two concepts Mm -hmm. and in discussions of artificial intelligence and often in in intelligence in general they are conflated and it's very frustrating your ability to sense the world around you for example looking at uh, the the color of red or smelling um, um, freshly baked bread or even the visual sense that you have um, that's very much um, um, you know a part of uh, as you mentioned, uh, the experience of qualia and consciousness in general. But the actual cognition that's happening, the the, the, the the computation, if you will, that's happening inside the brain is a separate process. Obviously, human consciousness is deeply tied um, to those cognitive abilities, but they are two mutually exclusive entities. We are extremely far away from having any sense of how to program machines to have consciousness at this point, mostly because we don't have a proper theory of consciousness yet or what the cognitive scientist uh, David Chalmers, Chalmers refers to as the hard problem of consciousness. We, really, we've got some basic ideas, but for the most part, we're not even close to, to being there. So for the time being, um, there's no way. Um, that our are, that are machines will have this level of introspection, these kinds of internal cogitations where it can um, ruminate philosophically or existentially on its existence and even get a sense as to what it's, what it's feeling or what it's experiencing in the world.
3: Um, Annie Murphy, Paul, really quickly, it seems as though the, the likely uh, place uh, of quick advancement uh, would be maybe on the other side, what you've already talked about, which is that machines extend the capacity of our brains. Uh, I'm going to ask George about this a, a, as well, but uh, it, that would seem to be the, where the growth might come is using a machine to make the brain even better.
0: Yes and to compensate for our weaknesses which are not the same as the weaknesses of a computer I think um you know our investigations into AI our, our research on AI has illuminated what has illuminated a lot about human intelligence what seems hard to us is easy for a computer and what seems easy to us like Learning a language you know without even being consciously taught or navigating around a, a a rough landscape or sensing what another person is feeling and thinking those things are really, really hard for computers to do and and as george said the, we're not computers are not likely to to be able to do that anytime soon
3: George we're running out of time, but um, if you could do it in thirty or forty seconds i'm assuming there'll be kind of a discomfort with the brain equivalent of the robotic arm basically that 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 putting Putting mechanics into the brain in order to make it better and, and have the computing power of a machine is an area of discomfort.
4: It is, but we will likely get there. I mean, there already is conversations about uh, what's called intelligence augmentation, and that can happen through neuropharmaceuticals, for example. But it could also happen through cybernetics, and if that's the case, I mean, we should see substantial jumps in human intelligence, and that obviously that's a, a wide array of capacities, including memory and um, you know, and of course those IQ smarts and mathematical abilities. I think the larger question is uh, just how well adjusted. Um, How uh, adaptable will these people be with extremely high intelligences? Um, It may actually prove to be an uh, an untenable proposition uh, and that we may actually see some real personality disorders and real uh, uh, problems living in the world with that kind of uh, intelligence. And
3: on that note, we've got to stop. Thank you, uh, George Dvorsky. Thank you, Annie Murphy-Paul. Thanks, Josh Nilea, for producing. We'll be back tomorrow with the news. (laughs)
2: Stupid Rubik's Cube. Can't figure it out. Ugh, that's it.
4: <laughs> I figured it out.